Welcome back to Sysadministrivia, the podcast where sometimes we have other priorities. This is Brent. Jathan isn't, uh, isn't joining us tonight. Unfortunately, he's got some finals to study for, or so he says. We'll see what's going on with that later. Up tonight, I plan on talking about Venom. This is May the 13th, so Venom is just a new thing that was announced very early this morning. We'll be talking about documentation, because we missed that in an earlier episode. We'll be talking about security in general, you know, why you should care about it, and why your friends and relatives should care about it, and why your pointy-haired bosses should care about it as well. We'll be talking about playing around with binary formats, and we'll also be mentioning encryption, some general applications, why you might want to use it, why you might not want to use it, uh, things like that. And uh, similar to security, we'll be talking about privacy and anonymity, why you might not realize how important it can be. So to start, Venom was just released today, or just announced today, I should say, publicly. Um, it was announced earlier, you know, following responsible disclosure to vendors. It affects Zen, KVM, slash Kimu, I think maybe VMware. I'll correct it in the show notes if it's if it's not accurate. I'll also put a link up to the, the actual exploits page along with the CVE. But essentially, it exploits uh, floppy emulation code that exists in certain hypervisors and uses that to escalate itself to other containers as well as the the host you know the the physical layer so that's that's some bad news there are there are patches out as i speak i'm sure companies everywhere are scrambling to get those patches implemented i've patched all all my personal stuff already but i'm not really hosting and anybody else's stuff so i'm not worried about it some hosts are not vulnerable linode excuse me for instance is not and they i'll link to a blog post explaining why uh, that they wrote but it's a, a very big deal. Um, people are already saying it's worse than Heartbleed. I don't believe that because Heartbleed was pretty bad and affected, you know, it had a much wider scope. I mean, everything used SSL. But it is still, you know, don't let me downplay it. It is a very bad thing. Pretty serious. But as long as you update your hypervisors, you know, keep them patched, you should be okay. But it is far-reaching. And even if you have the the emulated floppy device disabled, it can still be vulnerable. So please keep that in mind. The trouble with this podcast is, well, this particular episode, there's there's two troubles. I'm not used to being the only one. Uh, this, is, this is a lot more intimate. Hi, how are you doing? You know, without Jathan here, but <laughs> that's that's just for this episode. But, you know, in addition to me going solo for tonight. The problem is with podcasts, I I do a lot of a lot of post processing. And, you know, I, I wanted to make it sound good. So I, I chop out some of the ums and the uhs and the silences and things like that. But the downside of that is it takes me like three days because I do have a day job, which also sometimes becomes a night job and so on and so forth. So you know, I, I take a long time to edit this, and as a result, I'll announce something the day of its release, in this case Venom, uh, but many people won't hear it, you know, it won't be actually um, released for like another two or three days, and then that, that doesn't take into account when people actually listen to the episode as well. So that is that is a downside. Maybe we'll do some live streaming, we'll look into that later on, but yeah, for now, I do apologize for these for the late notice, it's, it's, you know, it's a downside of the media, the medium rather, you know, so that, that is a bit unfortunate. So hopefully by now, 
you would have heard of Venom and have everything patched. Fingers crossed. That's really all I have to say on that. You know, if you're that interested, I'm sure I'll I'll write good notes on it, but I'd like to move on because I've, I've got a fair bit of stuff to talk about. As far as documentation goes, you've got a couple points to consider. You've got format. How should it be hosted? Should it be distributed in a PDF or Word document file? Or you need to consider what kind of language you want to use. Should it be formal, informal? things like that. And a lot of that depends on context. So for documentation from a sysadmin to a sysadmin, you can use a wiki. It's it's what a lot of my a lot of my team uses at Foxy Proxy. But sometimes that's not always the best format. Mostly because it's it's a pain to update a wiki because it very quickly falls out of out of accuracy. Wikis are great for expansive type topics because you can really drill down, but they're not good for documentation that may need to stay up to date fairly regularly. So in those cases, if I'm if I'm doing system into system, assuming we have the same you know access levels, I'm particularly a fan of leaving like a plain text files in the uh, slash root or even you know like slash user local notes whatever. However, it's going to be accessible with your your fellow systems and keeping separate text files for that. So you've got like a to-do file uh, for things uh, that need to be implemented or looked into and such. You've got a, a bugs file for like, hey, this is happening. I haven't had a chance to look in it yet. You've got installation files, which may even be just like a, a log of packages and when they were installed and uh, things like that. You may have like a account credentials list, which does get tricky because you want to make sure that's encrypted. I can link to some really cool utilities I found that can handle that a little bit better for you. So, you know, you you need to keep in mind the context. You know, obviously that only works for a very limited amount of knowledge that you need to record. So as a downside of that, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's very hard to navigate, you know. If you've got like one giant readme on a server, and it's also not available offline. So if you're, if you have a disk crash and you need a file system check or something, you can't load over uh, like an out-of-band resource and, and check the documentation seeing like, oh, like this disk has several bad sectors, so we need to skip over them. Stuff like that. So that's not really, I'd say that's not so much in style anymore. It's also very not manager friendly. So sometimes you've got like a sysadmin to management. Usually that sort of documentation, if they're not technically literate, and if they have no need to edit the documentation, I prefer to just distribute it in PDFs. I prefer to do formal write-ups with, you know, steps and uh, screenshots. Those those pointy-haired bosses love the screenshots and graphs and everything. And explain the processes. You know, you want it to very be very in-depth, but very simple. And it's it's a very hard style to incorporate. But with a little bit of practice, you know, and, and revisions and things like that, you can get it done. So that that should be like a static source. You know, let the let the bosses save it to their desktop or whatever. So when they need to figure something out, they'll hopefully read it. The pictures help them to actually read it. <laughs> I don't think this is necessarily a character flaw of management figures, but they're very busy people. And yeah, I know we are too. We're, we're definitely very busy, but we have the advantage of a limited scope in how busy we are. And they have a much wider scope. You know, they we go deep and narrow and they go wide and shallow so you need to write to the 
the style of the shallow. You know, you need to keep it like, like plenty, like I said, plenty of screenshots, highlight the buttons they need to click, something they can just look right through and do half-mindedly. A general rule of thumb is if you can do it incredibly drunk successfully or at after just waking up at, you know, 4 a.m. and you can complete it successfully, that's pretty good documentation for management level. And then you've got users you need to think about. Users are kind of a, a much more unique situation. It's you're going to run into a mix between the management style writing and the admin style writing, you know, the engineer style writing. Because some users will have a very low technical competency and some users will have a much higher. So that's when you get to like mixed content. So you, you can have like a, a quick start guide. And I do this. I, I, I usually like release P different PDFs and I make them as applicable, available to all, all users. You've got like a quick start PDF. It's like, it's basically a fact, you know, like you've got how to do this, 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 maybe like five things that they need to do every single day. And maybe throw in one or two common bug workarounds, you know. And this is mostly just to cut down the influx of new tickets to your desk. Granted, it doesn't always work. Some users will read the documentation, but invariably, uh, most will not. And we're at a position where typically we don't have the authority to enforce them reading that documentation. Uh, so it's a very frustrating thing. But some users reading the documentation is better than no readers or no users reading documentation because it doesn't exist. So, you, you know, so a quick start should be a wide net. Try and focus on as many people as you can. Get the common issues you see in the help desk out of the way, and that'll cut down your ticket flow. More advanced users, you know, the quote-unquote power users, you can maybe go a little bit more into detail uh, because they're typically users who want to... They may not want to know the fine details of how it works, of how it works, but they're going to want to know how to, how to tweak the system and personalize it and increase their own efficiency and their own workflow by using the system that you, you offer them or you manage for them or whatever. So in the, in the case of like, uh, Linux users, Linux power users, uh, under your domain, if you will, you might want to include something on editing the dot bash underscore profile file or the dot bash RC or bash logout, stuff like that how to uh, set up aliases, change the profile colors, add paths, things like that. That's very useful to power users. And if they're new to a Linux system, but that's, you know, they just naturally gravitate toward the power user stance, they appreciate that extra mile. And then it, it saves them a lot of time from having to try and figure it out and wasting company time trying to figure that out as well. You know, so sometimes you need to justify documents, documentation to your management. And that's one way to do it. You know, I'm saving company time. All this material's already been collated. You know, it's it's already there. It it does boil down to kind of a CYA cover your ass kind of a thing because you'll have a, a manager come to you saying, Hey, this user in my team has been complaining that you're not helping them. And you can say, Well, actually, you know, question they ask every time is right here in the documentation that I gave them when they first started their account. So why aren't they reading that documentation? Documentation shouldn't act as a gateway, you know, for supporting your users, but it absolutely should be a way to interact with them without interacting with them, if you catch my drift. So that's it. That's mainly... The show goes by so much more quickly without Jathan, because I don't have anyone arguing with me and who is wrong. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that boils it down, documentation. It, it's generally some very simple, common sense stuff. 
But just keep in mind your audience and how it's being distributed and what sort of service, product, whatever that you're writing the documentation for. You know, it's all about context. Context is key in documentation. So that's that. This this next topic is a fun one. And fun should be italicized and in quotes because it's really not fun at all. But I, I get it every time I go in the soapbox with my uh, less technically minded uh, friends and relatives. So commonly with your less technical acquaintances, they'll say a line that usually goes along the lines of, why should I care about security? Nobody would try to hack me. First off, I have a big pet peeve about people using the word hack when they mean compromise or attack or what have you. But I mean, I, I guess I just have to bear my cross, you know. But that being said, it's really important that we take the time to explain to people why they should care. And I, I hesitate to use that terminology because it sounds like maybe elitist or or like thought police kind of a thing. Like, you have to think this way. But it's true. I mean, for whatever reason, people are quick to realize the importance of locking their door when they leave the house or locking the, the door of their car when they're in the city and, and things like that and, they, and they're parked. But they still don't really understand why they should worry about maybe not sharing passwords or not writing down passwords on post-it notes and putting them under the keyboard and things like that. I mean, frankly, I don't know where that comes from because the, it seems like the media does a piece on this all the time. It's always important to use strong passwords, uh, not write them down, things like that. Very rarely do I see flat out wrong advice given. Uh, usually it's, it's, I mean, it, it's half-hearted advice I'll, I'll usually see, but it's, it's on the good end of the spectrum, you know, and yet people still don't follow it. And that's what I'm struggling with. Basically, they'll shovel a pile of bullshit your way and you need to, to dig through and throw it right back in their face. Often you'll hear like, I don't have enough money in the bank. Let them, ha I don't care if, if quote unquote hackers get it. It's like, well, no, you, you don't need to have a lot of money in the bank for, for them to try and compromise your account. Typically, what they'll do is, uh, and they being attackers here, quote unquote, malicious hackers, black hats, whatever you want to call them. What they'll do is they'll try and amass as many accounts as they can for banking, for instance. And they can use this, these multitude of accounts to implement a wider money laundering scheme. So yeah, like you may have like 15 bucks to your name. But that's still 15 bucks they can add. I mean, it, and this is probably the most common argument I hear. So if you think of how many people don't, <laughs> if you think of how common that argument is, therefore that many people don't care about the strong security of their online banking information or financial information like student loans or tax info or things like that, social security number tax refund paperwork, anything, everything, you know, that all can be used to, to gain unauthorized access to your, your details and your resources. So if you think of all the people who think that they're not important enough to put effort into securing that, and let's say they all have $15 in resources. I know I've heard this at least from, I don't know, probably 300 people, and I'm an introvert, so I don't talk to that many people. That right there, if you've got $15, for 300 people, that's that's a cool four 4.5 grand. And they had to do nothing. You know, they just do a, a wide blanket attack, like a, a widespread attack. And they've got $4,500 right off the bat. That's not even that. And that's a very small sample size. 300 people is nothing. So that's why you see places like Anthem 
get hacked and and uh chase had a big attack a big compromise a little bit ago i think i mean and there's been plenty so that's that's why that's a big deal you may not have that much money and you may not be worried about losing it but it doesn't matter like salvation army you know you may give a couple cents here and there but they pull in a crap load of money from those Santas every Christmas ringing the bell because there's a lot of people giving a little money, which adds up to a lot of money. I don't know the best way to encourage not having that mindset. If you have a way of, of convincing them, I'd love to hear it. Another argument you commonly hear is, I don't care if someone compromises my social media account. Okay, well, you should. It's a public record of your online presence, and it can have a long-lasting effect of what it may be used for or such. It's commonly said that if it's on the internet, it's forever. That's true in varying degrees. There's things like, you know, archive.org's Internet Wayback Machine. But there's also, I don't know how many of you know this, hopefully all of you, even if you delete your Facebook account, for instance, Facebook still retains your information. They have no official retention policy other than let's keep it until we decide not to. It's not, you know, we'll wipe it after three years or whatever. Hopefully this changed, but last I looked, this is, this is how it is. The data you put on Facebook is not your own at that point. It's Facebook's. And yes, I know Sysadministrivia does have a Facebook. We do have a Twitter, but we hate social media. And hopefully we're not putting any, any stuff on there we really care about. It's all just bullshit. Our tweets are being imported automatically to Facebook and, and things like that. So it's, we don't really care too much about it. I just use it as a way to interact. And that's what you should use it for. Like sending passwords in a Facebook message is a bad idea because now you've got many people who can see that password and you're, you're just not thinking of it. There's been a couple incidences where people have even acted as vigilantes. You know, they work for a social media company and they see maybe an act of infidelity going on. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I think infidelity is just absolutely horrible, but, but it's really not a social media company's place, employee's place to intervene and, and to like get in contact with the victim of the cheating, you know, or things like that. It's really not their place at all. And yet it's happened. You need to think about privacy. Like in social media, nothing is private. There's at least one person who can see everything that's not you. And the more uh, loose and, and rowdy you are with your, your credentials, your login credentials, the, the more likely that you can see unforeseen harm come to you because of that. You know, more and more businesses are checking the Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter accounts of employees they're looking to hire before the, even the first interview. The second they get the resume, they're going to be Googling. And they're going to be looking for that kind of stuff. Why? I mean, it's, I guess it's a good way to get an idea of the person. I'll admit I've done it. It's, you know, it's, it's something you're very curious about. I also realized I was wrong for doing that, which is why I don't do it anymore. It's a huge invasion of privacy and it's super fucking rude. So I, I've recognized my mistake and I've stopped doing it, but it's still very commonplace in the hiring world. So. You may be wondering why you didn't get that job. It's probably because you came up in Facebook with, with a profile photo of you doing a keg stand. You know, so like, that should be illegal. It should be illegal. I mean, that's, that's what it is. I can understand why they do it. To some degree, your public presence will be representative of the company you work for. And the higher up you go, the more at risk you are of that. 
So I think, think, think before you post, think before you, you sign up for that social media, read the terms of service. I know they're in, I'm pretty sure they're intentionally written to discourage you from reading them because they're, they're terribly dry, but read them anyways, because you're, you're going to find some very worrying and surprising stuff. Uh, another common argument I hear is I'm not important enough to be a target, uh, which is very similar to the, first the first argument you know with a bank you, you're not hope high profile enough for people to attack you you're not a celebrity you're not in the government you know you're not a member that's that's in the public the physical public eye or in the news or things like that that may be true but there are low-hanging fruit attacks as with the bank you know they're not trying to every attack is going to be a targeted attack most of them aren't, actually. We hear about them because it's already people that we know from the news anyways. So it's it's sort of like a self-propagating fame machine or something. But most of the attacks that go on are far and wide reaching. They just grab whatever they can. They're just hitting hitting every service with every possible way. There are compromises of email providers like Yahoo Mail got hit pretty hard uh, a little bit back. And they got access to every, maybe not every, a whole bunch of email accounts, credentials. And they could then use this to, to spam and do all sorts of other crazy stuff. By the way, if you're worried about, if you're not worried about someone like getting access to your email account, yeah, okay, someone spams from your account, no big deal. Close it, open another one. But what happens when you sign up for your bank and you have to set an email address to send a password reminder to or, or to reset your password through? What happens when you do that with, say, TurboTax.com or whatever the website is? What happens when they do that with your tax return site email? Things like these are, people don't think about them. And it's very easy to ruin someone's life by committing identity fraud, basically. Draw amassing huge amounts of debt. You don't need to have the money. You just need to be a person. You just need to be online. And you're automatically a target. So keep that in mind as well. But yeah, there there are there's not just targeted attacks. There's there's low hanging fruit attacks and things like that. You know, widespread attacks. And unfortunately, if you say use Gmail.com or whatever, you are at the mercy of their security. So if someone manages to get access to their credentials listing, you are part of that list. It's not just one person that got hacked at that point or compromised. Excuse me, I'm breaking my own rule. You are part of a much larger group. And you are just a username and password to the, the attackers. That's it. They don't care if you're broke. They don't care if you're already in debt from medical bills or student loans. They don't care. To them, you are just an account. You're just a username and a password with some interesting resources attached to it. That's it. Uh, by the way, I also hope you're not using the same password for multiple accounts. Don't use your same Facebook uh, password for your email password and things like that, because that's also a really easy way to have your life destroyed, basically. I'll, I'll post a link of an interesting uh, story, you know, a, a true story that, that happened uh, related to that kind of attack. But the last argument I hear that I'm going to talk about, there's plenty of arguments against as to why people don't think security is important. But the last one I hear a lot kind of goes like the bear joke. If you're not familiar with the bear joke, there's two guys in the woods, and they they come across a bear that's 
obviously, you know, enraged. It's getting ready to attack them. It's a mother bear. Somehow they stumbled across the, the baby bears. So one guy's freaking out. He's like, oh my gosh, do we have any weapons? Do we have anything? The other guy just quickly, calmly starts putting on his running shoes. And the, the first guy says like, what are you, what are you doing? You can't outrun a bear. You know, they're, they're, they're too fast. And they, they climb, you know, some of them climb trees. We don't know if they can climb trees. Like, what are you doing? The second guy answers, uh, I don't need to be faster than the bear. I just need to be faster than you. And in that particular instance, it may be true. Bears are dumb. They're, they're pretty dumb. They're smart, but they're pretty dumb. They're gonna just get their target and then focus on that target. Unfortunately, humans aren't like that. And humans tend to be much more resourceful, which is probably why we're at the top of the food chain. You can be a target. At any moment, even like a focus target, like for the victim of a targeted attack. If there's one thing the Internet's taught us, and it's uh, 25 years now of existence, I think, something like that. You can get, quote unquote, Internet famous overnight. Overnight. Within a couple hours, even. And I can I can post a link to a, a related story about that either to a related story about that, too. But basically, within a couple of hours, even you can you can become trending on Twitter. And that's not a good thing. I know some of maybe the casual listeners may be thinking, oh, that'd be great. I, I want to be famous. I want recognition. I want publicity. That's really not a good thing in the online world because with that comes the much higher potential for targeted attacks. And usually if you're a quick victim of, you know, a sudden victim of internet fame, it's probably for something bad, because that's how the internet works. You know, people don't really care about good things people do. They care about the bad things. Or what they perceive to be bad things, you know, what have you. And there's a lot of people out there that take subjective political stances as fact, uh, and, and will very gladly make your, intentionally make your, your life a living hell, because you may have different politics than they do. So, yeah, you can become a target at any moment. So it's still a weak argument as to why you shouldn't care about security. If you want to talk with Jathan and I and maybe some other people about how, like, things you, steps you can take to increase your personal security, you know, please hop in our IRC channel or use our contact page or what have you to, to get in touch with us. We'd love to, to share our knowledge. But, I mean, it's the first step is really making people care. This is a conversation Jathan and I have very often. He asks, why hasn't x technology x caught on yet and i said because people don't care about purpose y that technology x addresses you know that's why gpg or pgp or whatever isn't in common use because people don't care they don't realize how easy it can be and they don't care about the security and privacy concerns it tries to address why did elo not catch on well aside from them being totally unsustainable as a business model people just didn't care that much about privacy and that was that was what they were trying to sell you is privacy privacy in your social media which is always an oxymoron to me personally but be that as it may so i just i challenge you to to think about the ways you're using technology and the internet and especially the internet of things you know and, and things like that think about it wonder like what am i doing right now that can affect me what possible results of this thing can can this have i'm going to move on because I've been ranting about this a lot. This is a fun one. This is actually like a, a non-sarcastic fun one. You can you can fuck with binary formats. You can make them do all sorts of really cool things. I'm going to post a, a link to some software utilities that I at least know of on Linux. 
Windows and BSD users here on your own. BSD users are probably in luck because they, and I'm, I'm including Mac OS X users as the BSD users because they're using the, the Darwin system. I mean, you're, you're probably in luck because usually, usually there's source available for these that should compile on traditional Unix style systems. Windows users, eh, maybe. So first is actually pretty much the only thing. It's called steganography. It's, it's what I wanted to focus this section on. It's really cool. Using steganography, you can typically, it's done with images. So you can take like an image, like a, a GIF or a JPEG or whatever, PNG, and you can embed either ASCII or binary data within that binary data. So you can take an image and when you know what to look for, when you know what to look for in that image, or even if you just know that it's got something hidden in it, sometimes that's good enough. You can then run it through a parser and it will find that, that hidden piece. And you'd be surprised how many photos out there are, use steganography. It's very popular in alternate reality games. If anyone plays Ingress, you'll know that a lot of clues have been dropped through steganography and things like that. I think they usually hide those in, in movie file formats or something like that, but you know, it's everywhere. And that's the crazy thing about it. So you, you've got some really cool things you can do with steganography. If you don't want to tell someone a password, if the data doesn't need forward secrecy, so it's, you know, it's, it's only, it's something you don't want people finding easily, but it's okay if it's, if the quote unquote encryption algorithm is broken over time, you know, it's just something like a real quick instance or whatever. Things like that. Steganography is your, your, your tool to use. It requires no transaction beforehand. So like GPG, PGP, you'd have to exchange public keys beforehand. It doesn't need that. You don't need to share passwords. You can. There are ways to, to embed passwords into, into your stags, but you certainly don't need to. And you can do all sorts of crazy stuff. One of the zines, e-zines I've been reading lately. I kind of hate that term, but whatever. One of the e-zines I've been reading lately is proof of concept or get the fuck out. Post a link, but there is, there's not really any official page for it, which is pretty cool. It's, it's distributed distribution. It's free. Uh, something really cool that they do is they, it's distributed as a PDF file. It will open just fine in a PDF reader. But then if you run it through, say, unzip, it's actually a zip file embedded into that PDF. Uh, and it works just fine, you know, unzip, file name.pdf. And lo and behold, there's other files in there where they've got some actual source code for proof of concepts. They've got, they always have past episodes, you know, past uh, issues of the zine. So you can get them all in one place, which is why, you know, each each issue is increasingly larger in file size, but hopefully that's something they'll figure out. Also, all sorts of really neat stuff. So I'll, I'll link to, to as, many, as many of those as I can find. It's super cool. It's, it's very super cool. And yeah, and, and like your PDF, your PDF viewer, if you will, your PDF application shouldn't complain about it. It should just open as a regular PDF. So you, you wouldn't really be any the wiser unless you knew to unzip that file. Very cool stuff. So I, I just wanted to mention that and I'll post in the notes, you know, more, more information about that. But it's, it's a really cool way to hide stuff in plain sight. If you know that you're, you're going to be distributing stuff to other people who are technically savvy and may know that you favor technography, you can do some really cool stuff. This next topic, I don't even know why I have it here, because in other episodes I, I plan on getting more in-depth with, with encryption, and we've already talked about it a lot, both in this episode and 
especially more so in past episodes. But my general rule for encryption is encrypt whatever you can, whenever you can, which may seem a bit paranoid. But I know that my memory and my maybe wherewithal, my awareness, is not always going to be 100% up to the context it's in. So that means, let's say I'm, I'm typing on my laptop. I'm like, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, I, I've got this private key. Let's say, like, my, my Bitcoin private key. Whatever, I'll just save it to this file, no biggie. And then my laptop gets stolen a couple hours later. Without disk encryption, I'm in for a rough time. Because they very easily pull data from that laptop before selling it or whatever they want to do. And they can use that data. And that was something I started innocuously enough, meant it to be just maybe a temporary thing or didn't count on my laptop getting stolen. But lo and behold, let's say it happened. So that is your boned at that point. And that's one small example. So encryption with a, a, you know, go wide application is never going to hurt you. Might make me, it might make things inconvenient, but it's never going to do actual harm. I do tend to avoid encrypting disks for servers, but usually for those, I've, I've got other security measures in place, even down to the hardware level, you know? Uh, because I really don't want to get a call at 4 a.m. saying the server isn't booting because, you know, like, wait, it's sitting at the console waiting for you to put in the decrypt password or something like that. That's a pain in the ass. I appreciate your attention to detail, but yeah, that's, that's not going to be good if it suddenly loses power or something. So, I mean, it's something to think about, but, and I, and I certainly wouldn't dissuade you from doing that if, if you have maybe an around the clock team or something. But if you're the one that gets the call, you might want to think twice about doing that and, and find different ways of encrypting that data at rest other than full disk encryption. There's maybe a better idea of, of doing just encryption of a data store and then, you know, leaving the OS itself unencrypted. You need to make sure you, you lock out changes to the bootloader. You need to lock out changes to the BIOS or FE firmware to change the boot order. You need to change um, some settings for, you know, the hardware terminals. Only certain users can log on at the physical terminal, things like that. But that's all certainly possible and within uh, ability and a good idea, certainly. But as far as encryption goes, in the US and now France with the proposed plan of basically NSA's little brother. You've got an organization that's overreaching. They're grabbing everything they can. And in many cases, they're grabbing things they legally have no right to grab. Who's going to stop them? So since we can't trust our authoritative figures to address this, we have to address this ourselves. You know, we have to make sure that our data, our personal data, is well encrypted, both at rest and in transit. And we have to make sure that we're using strong, preferably unbreakable algorithms with perfect forward secrecy, all that. You know, we have to go the whole nine and we have to teach our friends, neighbors, relatives, we have to teach our community how to use these tools. Because if just one person encrypts, it's not really useful at all. You don't really have any use for that. But if we teach those around us, even our enemies, you know, our personal enemies that we may have a grudge with because they like, I don't know, slip with our sister or something like that. If we take measures to even encourage them to use encryption, the world would be a much safer place, which strangely enough is, is not the narrative you're told by the NSA and the FBI now. But it's true. I mean, I may harp on government authorities getting access to sensitive data, sensitive personal data, but it has a carryover of thieves getting that data, attackers getting that data and things like that. 
If it's easy for one, it's automatically easy for the other, period. Full stop. So don't make it easy for him. Fuck him. You want to make sure you implement as many measures as you can to prevent that. And if you need suggestions on things you can do to increase your security, you know, like I said, Jathan and I are always hanging out in IRC. I'm up very strange hours. I sleep very little. Uh, so just hop in and ping us. We'd love to help you out any way we can. And I'm sure there are plenty of other communities we can guide you towards that can pick up where we left off or things like that. We want to see people safe and secure, have their privacy respected. So we're going to we're gonna do what we can to help help make that happen. And then lastly for this episode is privacy and anonymity. You, you, you'll kind of notice like a basically a central theme during this episode with the exception of the two items at first, you know, venom and, and documentation. This is sort of an ode to your digital rights online. Rights as a netizen, as it were, you know, if you want to be flashy about it. I'm amazed there is no sort of Geneva con Convention or, or likewise, you know, that guarantees national rights, international rights. By nature, that's what the internet is. It's international, you know, it's, it's connecting many different countries and many different continents. And to not have some kind of central policy guaranteeing, not, you know, policy of those who run the, the companies or anything like that necessarily, although I do support net neutrality, not necessarily deciding like, you know, companies need to make data available to the government authorities when they ask for it or things like that. I'm talking about simply um, guaranteeing rights. We see a lot of legislation that guarantees resources that law enforcement can use and things like that, but we don't see anything like the the constitution or, or rights of humanities for online individuals. Something that can be that can every country can commit to. And that's probably because nobody can agree like how censored the internet should be. Like good luck getting China on board with that, you know, but or Australia in some cases, Russia, you know, has, has got some weird filtering stuff going on in their country. So like good luck making that happen, but I'm amazed that something like that didn't happen before the filtering even got put in place. But whatever, the internet used to be a wild west and it still sort of is. You as a person may not care about privacy or anonymity, but I care for you. I think it's important that like, if you wouldn't let people read your personal mail, then you shouldn't be letting them read your email. If you're not letting people watch you, every minute of the day if you're not recording video of yourself and playing it on the tv uh, on like i don't know abc or cbs or something if you're not willing to record yourself every moment of the day then why are you allowing that to happen digitally why are you opening yourself up to that sort of vulnerability and that sort of extrospection i guess you could call it when there's i just don't understand the disconnect people have between their analog world and their digital world you should be consistent between both, and I just don't understand why people would be so willing to give up their privacy for convenience. Convenience, I think, is largely overrated. What is frequently convenient is usually not actually all that convenient, and it leads to, it quite frequently, leads to many unexpected results. And I think it would be wise of us to consider that, you know, moving forward. But there are instances where maybe you might want to leave a trail, you know, why you might want to leave a public trail. 
there's there's a concept called uh, plausible deniability, and the opposite of that would be absolute deniability. Plausible deniability is like you can't, you have no evidence of proving I did this thing, therefore you legally have no right to imprison me or jail me or whatever for this, you know, sue me, whatever. Absolute deniability is saying I've got an alibi and it's confirmed with multiple people. You know, I I didn't do this thing. What you're saying is just flat out wrong, and you can exploit that. So let's say if you were a dissident of the government, you express some opinions they don't particularly like, you potentially, now it's maybe less, I would assume it happens less these days because we know about it more, but you know, a couple couple years ago, it, it happened probably in a higher frequency and with much more dire results. You could be, you know, black hooded, you know, they drive up in a van next to you, grab you, put a black hood on you, drive away, nobody ever sees you again. And this has happened in the U.S. So, I mean, just because you're not in some, you know, you're not in country acts, don't think it can't happen to you. Because it very well can. It has happened in the U.S. Maybe not it's as publicized or as well-known as it happens in other countries, but, you know, it happens. This, the saying goes that, um, or the scenario goes that, like, you're put on trial let's say, as a potential bomber, an accused bomber. Um, and this is kind of relevant to the whole bombing thing that, that took place a couple of years ago and is part of that race, the Boston Marathon. So let's say you're accused of bombing, but you didn't do it. You know you didn't do it. But it, at that point, it's your word against the entire legal system. And if they really need to, they will fabricate evidence to imply and, and convince the jury, if you're lucky enough to be, you know, to have a peer jurored trial to make it look like you did it that's fine that's you know that that happens whatever it's not fine but you know it, it happens so how do you prevent that well you make it really easy for your defense you turn on geolocation for all your tweets and facebook status updates and things like that you update them constantly so now you've got proof that you were nowhere near the incident when it happened so you you couldn't have done it you know and you've got all your followers on your social media who can you know, like confirm, yes, like he was not there. Uh, and you've got a third party company, a huge company with, you know, with nothing to gain from altering it, essentially nothing to gain from altering the, the trail. And their records state that, yes, you were not there. You were somewhere else at the time of the incident. So that that can come in really handy. But that's kind of a risky way to live. You know, it's it's very invasive. And I personally like my privacy. Again, you know, INTJ, I'm an introvert. So I do. I do love my, my privacy. So I don't know. I mean, I, I've got mixed feelings about that. I don't think I would want to do it unless I absolutely had to. But it, you know, it is a really cool way of, of hacking around the lack of privacy that social media brings uh, and instead using it to keep your status of not guilty of an incident in the, in the courtroom. That's all I have for today. I'm sorry this is if this is maybe a little bit low key. Jathan usually like keeps keeps me a little bit more energized. Once again, this is Brent. You've been listening to Sysadmins Trivia. We'll see you later. Hopefully Jathan will join us next time. <laughs>